This is an interview recorded with Captain H.W.C. Alger at his home in Ringwood, Hampshire, on June the 8th. The desert airmail route from Cairo to Baghdad was the first link in what was to become the chain which formed the main route from England to Australia in later years. Captain Alger, when did you first become aware of the desert air route? I first became aware of this operation when I heard that Crossley Tenders and the manufacture of plowshares, etc., were being carried out at the engine repair depot in Cairo. Now, these tenders were intended to tow plows to make a furrow across the desert between Transjordan and Ramadi on the Euphrates. And it was planned that two parties should take part in this operation, one starting from the Iraq side and the other from the Transjordan side to meet approximately halfway. The object of making such a, a furrow across the desert was because quite obviously, although one could fly that section of the desert by compass, the slightest deviation from the direct route would create great difficulties for search aircraft. It was therefore decided that the operation should be carried out following this prescribed route, which was clearly defined by a plow track and the wheel tracks of the Crossley tenders. Then later on, you actually began to fly over the route yourself. Yes, uh, after having learned to fly with the Royal Air Force at Number 4 Flying Training School at Aberswear, I was posted to 45 Squadron Baghdad. Very shortly after my posting there, 45 Squadron was given the task of taking over the Cairo-Baghdad airmail from number 70 squadron, which had been flying it for approximately a year. What aircraft were you flying? Uh, the aircraft we flew were Vickers Vernons, which were a cabin type of aircraft based on the Vickers Vimy, which Messrs. Orcock and Brown flew the Atlantic. It was equipped with two Rolls-Royce Eagle 8 engines and cruised at about 75 miles an hour. What were the um, main problems of flying the route in those days? Main problems of flying the route really um, 
were refueling, stocks of fuel had to be laid down in the desert because the Vickers Vernon hadn't the range to fly the direct route from Iraq to Transjordan. Did you look forward to the uh, change into these duties? Everyone in the squadron was highly delighted when we were given this task because it was not only of a pioneering nature but extremely interesting and wonderful practice for long-distance flying and generally speaking it was a much more interesting job than the day-to-day work of a bomber squadron. Was there a routine for these flights across the desert? Yes, indeed there was. Um, the, the amount of mail we carried, plus our passengers, resulted in every flight being fully loaded. And during summer months in particular, this meant taking off in very high temperatures with a very heavy load. And we therefore developed an operational plan by which we would take off from Baghdad in the late afternoon when the sun was not quite so hot and fly only as far as Ramadi about an hour's flight. Um, That also gave us the opportunity of taking off from Ramadi in the very early morning when it was nice and cool with a full load of petrol which normally got us as to one of the refueling points on the desert. One either refueled at a, a large mudflat called LG5, or one was able to continue to a similar point nearer to Amman at a landing ground called LGD. Then it was planned to night stop at Ziza on the Transjordanian Railway. So how many days did the normal flight take? So this virtually meant a two-day flight plus the short journey from Baghdad to Ramadi the previous night. You mentioned that petrol was stored at all these landing grounds. How was it uh, kept secure? Uh, No, petrol was only stored at at two in those early days. Uh, One at LG5, as I said, and the other at uh, LGD. And it was stored in an underground tank. The 
top of the tank was visible, but the main tank itself was completely buried underground. And we used to have to carry a special key to undo the dome to obtain access to the fuel in the tank. What sort of accommodation did you have for the night stops in the desert? Uh, there was no accommodation whatever, anywhere. At Ziza, it was merely the station master's office, where four or five of you could lie down on the floor. If we stopped on the desert, which we frequently did, we slept on the desert, in the open air. Was it a fairly uneventful life on the route? Uh, on the contrary, I think practically every flight had its particular incidents. One or two, of course, went through without any trouble. But um, quite often one would get held up for one reason or another. And by, by and large, it was full of interest the whole time. Now, you yourself had, um, I believe, rather um, a nasty experience during one of your flights. Yes, well, on my first flight in command from Cairo to Baghdad, I had considerable trouble. In point of fact, I think I can probably claim the record for the length of time taken to get from Cairo to Baghdad by air. This particular flight took me 14 days instead of the two, which was normal. The main trouble was that I was flying a Vickers Vernon with the newly installed Napier Lion engines and we were beginning to experience a great deal of trouble from vibration which transmitted itself to the radiators. And after a while, on frequent occasions, the side seam of the radiator would break away from its mounting and you would very quickly lose all your water. This flight I'm talking about in particular, we had in all five new radiators. It started shortly after I had crossed the Suez Canal. Both radiators started to leak very badly and I had to land on a salt flat near Mozifig, which is just a little west of Gaza. We erected our emergency radio station and told Cairo what had happened and Cairo came back a little later on saying that two new radiators were being dispatched to me by Vickers Vimy. 
How did you set up this emergency <coughs> radio station? Um, we used to run out about 200 feet of aerial wire and put the end on top of a, a long pole and obtain our power from a hand generator. The hand generator had to be operated by one of the crew or if we could find a kind passenger to give us a hand. The whole of the time that the wireless operator was transmitting. Nevertheless, although it sounds very crude, it was quite successful and generally speaking one could communicate with uh, a main base from practically any point on the route from Cairo to Baghdad. Even, shall I say, halfway between Ramadi and Transjordan one could pick up either Baghdad or Amman. Now continuing on with this troublesome flight of yours. Well that wasn't by any means the end of our troubles. We set off from our mud flat destination Ziza but when flying at about 4,000 feet above the southern end of the Dead Sea to my dismay the starboard radiator started leaking very badly indeed. I was faced therefore with a, a forced landing. I knew there was a small landing ground on the El Lisan Peninsula at the southern end of the Dead Sea but was afraid I wouldn't quite reach it with my remaining engine. The other of course having to be shut off or it would have seized up. The eastern side of the Dead Sea has a range of hills called the Amu Jamal Plateau and I noticed on top of one of these hills which incidentally are about 3,000 feet above sea level there was a, a reasonable stretch of ground on which I thought I could land. The landing was quite successful but the hillside on which we landed was very steep indeed and with our heavy load the aircraft tended to slip back slightly the whole of the weight coming onto the tail skid which in turn cracked a tube. It was clear then that we not only required a new radiator but also the spare part which supported the tail skid. Once again our emergency radio station was erected and everyone concerned was told of what happened. It was quite clear to me that I would be unable to take off from this position unless my passengers and a considerable amount of the load were taken off. And talking of passengers, it's interesting to note here that one of them 
was a Captain Glubb, who of course later became better known as Glubb Pasha. The next morning we were told by radio that a Vickers Vimy had left Heliopolis with my spare parts and that they would be flown to Ziza and from Ziza would be brought to me by armored car and crossly tender. And on arrival, the passengers would be taken back in the crossly tendered to Ziza to await my arrival. Unhappily, the Vimy did not reach Ziza. It had trouble over the Dead Sea in almost exactly the same spot that I did. He made a forced landing on the El Lusan Peninsula and damaged his aircraft quite extensively. There are no roads whatsoever from El Lusan to anywhere. And the spurs eventually were collected by a motorboat sent down from the top end of the Dead Sea, picked up, taken back, collected at Jericho by tenders and brought to me seven days exactly after we had landed. We quickly effected the necessary repairs and the problem of takeoff arose and I decided that there was only one way to do it and that was to taxi to the top of the hill and take off downhill downwind and this proved successful and we reached Ziza without further incident. Now was that the end of your troubles? No. Now this wasn't the end of our trouble on this particular flight. About a hundred miles east of Ziza an engine failed. We landed on a large mud flat and I found that a connecting rod had come through the wall of a cylinder. So obviously we required a new engine. This, it was arranged that a Vickers Vimy should fly from Heliopolis with an engine for me. Quite interesting to note that the engine was mounted on the rear gunner's cockpit of the Vickers Vimy and when it arrived on the desert alongside me we had to lift it off with telescopic shear legs and transfer it to our own aircraft. However, this was successfully achieved and off we went again. We hadn't gone very far in point of fact. We reached a landing ground called LGR on the plough track when both radiators once again were leaking very badly. We attempted temporary repairs. We seemed to stop it 
flowing enough to carry on. But we hadn't gone more than about 10 miles before we had to land again at landing ground 10, which is approximately halfway between Transjordan and Iraq. Were you left completely undisturbed by the, uh, the natives in the desert? Um, not entirely. Generally speaking, the natives in the desert are very friendly. Very shortly after we landed at LGR, a band of nomads seemed to arrive from nowhere. We hadn't seen them when we landed. And very shortly, um, we got extremely worried because they were so interested in the aircraft that they were prodding at it with knives and sticks or whatever they could to see how it was made. I'm not suggesting they were hostile, but it was quite clear that before very long they would do quite serious damage, and if some of the fabric came away from one of the wings, we could be in trouble. I therefore decided to carry on. I therefore decided to carry on to the next um, landing ground, and it was there that we realised our temporary repairs would not get us very far. How did you carry out these temporary repairs? Um, the answer there is rather amusing. You won't believe it, but on all these flights we carried large quantities of Wrigley's chewing gum. And we used to get everybody chewing. And we used to stuff chewing gum into all the cracks. And where it was possible, we would reinforce it with penny washers and long 2BA bolts, which went through the honeycomb of the radiator. Quite often this was very successful indeed. The heat of the radiator seemed to solidify the chewing gum and quite often lasted for a very long period. But they reached a stage when some of these radiator splits at the seam became so long and so wide that all the chewing gum we could chew had no effect. And so in the end you had to send again for new radiators. Once again, out came the radio station and we told Baghdad. Shortly afterwards, I was told that my own commanding officer, who Wing Commander Hill, who of course everyone knows became Chief of Fighter Command, Air Chief Marshal Hill, was coming out with new radiators to my assistance. He soon found us at LG-10, landed alongside us. We put on the new radiators and the two aircraft set off back for Baghdad in formation. Were there any other means of transport across the desert at that time? Oh, yes. Um, in addition to the Cairo-Baghdad airmail, operated by the Royal Air Force. There were two brothers uh, named Nairn who started a, 
a service with cars between Amman, Damascus, and Baghdad. They started, first of all, with large American saloon cars, but later their business became so successful that they operated what was virtually a huge um, bus type of vehicle with passengers and mail operating very nearly as quickly as our airmail. For after all, on the straight stretches of desert, these vehicles could cruise along at 60 or 70 miles an hour continuously. And it's rather amusing to recall that on occasions, our poor Vickers Vernons, which would do, say, 70 miles an hour, would encounter a, a headwind of 35 miles an hour and Mr. Nairn's transport would overtake us. Was it about this time that you transferred to Imperial Airways? Uh, not really. Um, I did a short period of service with the Royal Air Force in England on leaving 45 Squadron in 1926, when Imperial Airways were planning to take over this route from the Royal Air Force, and it was quite clear that Imperial Airways would need new pilots to cope with this new operation. As a result, they went to the Royal Air Force to find out if any pilots with such experience were available. In other words, they were recruiting from experienced pilots in the Royal Air Force rather than training new ones. And I myself was fortunate enough to be selected by Imperial Airways and I started flying for them in February 1928. How were you selected? It was first of all conveyed to me by my commanding officer at Worthydown that Imperial Airways were looking for pilots. Was I interested? And I of course said yes. And he very kindly said to me, well, you'd better take yourself to Croydon. And I therefore was allowed to take a Vickers Virginia to Croydon and Major Brackley, the operations manager of Imperial Airways at that time, met me on the tarmac and within a very short time I had got the job. I asked Major Brackley what the position would be regarding my Royal Air Force service. 
And he said, oh, I think it can be quite easily arranged that you will be released from the Royal Air Force to take up a position with Imperial Airways. And this happened very shortly afterwards. So then you were back on the Cairo to Baghdad air route. Now, what was the essential difference between operating for the RAF and operating for Imperial Airways? Well, first of all, there was... Uh, the, the difference that we had slightly more modern aircraft. We were flying the Haviland 66s with three engines, and night stop accommodation was arranged at several places which could accommodate passengers and crew. Quite a lot had happened since I left the Royal Air Force in the development of this route to Baghdad. Accommodation had been built by Imperial Airways at Gaza to accommodate a crew and say 12 to 15 passengers. Similarly, a fort had been built at a place called Rutba, about halfway across the desert to Baghdad. This too contained quite nice quarters for passengers and crew and quite a, wrong, a strong radio station was incorporated in the building. At Baghdad crew quarters were built. They were rather crude, rather like cells made of mud bricks However, they were made as comfortable as possible. And at Basra, prefabricated buildings were taken out from England and erected near the Royal Air Force Station at Shaiba. But generally speaking, the standard of accommodation, considering the route was in its infancy, was quite good, and so was the food. What sort of uh, schedule were you operating then? Uh, it was a once-a-week schedule, and unfortunately this meant that utilisation of pilots wasn't very high. Uh, one would fly from Cairo to Baghdad and then have to wait a week until one returned with another aircraft and the pilot in turn would also wait a week. This continued as we extended the route to Basra and finally Bashar and Karachi. Once weekly service of course, it neither gave the aircraft much utilisation either. Were there any particular uh, worries in operating these flights? No, I can't say there were any worries at all, really. The communications were considerably better than we had enjoyed in the Royal Air Force, as one might expect. The aircraft were very reliable, one rarely had 
trouble. They were equipped with Bristol Jupiter radial engines, so we had none of the radiator bother that I remember so well on the Vickers Vernons. How long a sector did you have to fly? Usually from Cairo to Baghdad was the sort of sector one would fly. But even that, at 75 miles an hour, or 80 miles an hour, was quite a long sector. And in midsummer, crossing that desert, one could get very tired. Of course, the DH-66 had only one pilot seat, and we used not to carry a a first officer. And you were therefore faced with quite a long journey, and on many occasions one would get extremely fatigued and do almost every trick one can think of to resist dozing off. The cockpits were open to the sun, and I can recall on many occasions even standing up on my pilot's seat and exposing myself to the full slipstream to keep myself well and truly awake. The wireless operator would cooperate and either keep talking to you or do anything he could to to make sure that fatigue did not interfere with the flight.